Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. I am Mark, that is Christopher. Um, I'm still singing and talking in this bedroom. <laughs> he really is. That's the Tizer talking. Um, oh, fucking yeah, yeah. We, we put our can, we, we finished half of the can and then sort of put it to the side for a week. And so it's now flat and a bit warm, which is <laughs> less than ideal, if I'm honest. <laughs> no, it's bringing out the complex flavours. It's like brandy. Uh, you know how you get those it? glasses so that you can warm it and it helps release the vapour and you can actually appreciate and taste the brandy. Mm. You know, brandy and cognac and things are meant to be kind of, you don't chill them because then you hide the flavours I've learned that that's that's how you consume Tizer all these people bringing it out of fridge and just cracking it open and trying to refresh themselves mm. Tizer's no for that yeah. Tizer you hold the can in your hand you let the wee bubbles escape then you really savour the, the summer orchards of Possil <laughs> <laughs> and Drumchapel and all these wonderful places that uh, bar go and harvest the miscellaneous fruit. the miscellaneous fruits <laughs> uh, that go into this mystery drink. Um, yeah, no, I mean it's it's not the worst, but uh, it's not I, the best either. <laughs> it's it's not. Uh, is Vimto is better or worse than Vimto? I think it's probably worse than Vimto. Apparently, um, the people that own the recipe for Vimto also own the recipe for Tizer, which is an interesting factor either. So interesting. They yeah. also have a good reputation for ethical drinks. They do, yeah, yeah, yeah. Aye. Go bar, go Vimto. Anyway, you join us on a subject of placebo mm-hmm. part two. Oh, weird transatlantic accents all over the shop. Yes, uh, placebo. The uh, kind of Euro indie pop via. Britain or British indie pop via yeah. Europe, we can't quite decide. The band that wouldn't happen if Brexit was a thing like 20 30 years ago. There you go, there mm. you go, Boris, in your face. Thanks, mate. so placebo, the members of which were born in Europe but that came together in London against the backdrop of uh, the Britpop movement, really in full swing, probably 94 95, mm. Oasis and Blood and stuff are riding high. And he, he, here comes up this kind of gender bending, controversial, cross dressing, kind of fuzz pop. Old rocky sort of thing. Indie, yeah. It was a really interesting sound, didn't really fit, but did really find a niche. And yeah, and they had a lot going for them. They, they, you know, they, they had a bit of a reputation as tearaways, as we mentioned in part one. Uh, they had a, a real uh, importance in the lives of the LGBTQ plus community and questioning young folk who, who weren't really sure of their identity and were looking for role models, which, as we mentioned, were kind of thin on the ground musically here at the time, you know, contemporary uh, ones at the time. Um, there were a few in the USA, but Placebo sort of stood out in that respect. And they met with a bit of backlash, um, certainly from a lot of the, the kind of lad rock stuff and the kind of lads mags and all that kind of oeuvre. And then brought out some really good records and then went on to bring out some records that, spoiler yeah. alert, weren't they quite as good. Yeah. So... We kind of started on that. Uh, we'll pick up where we left off. We shall. So let's let's get into it. 2006, they brought out Meds. Um, this features a couple of guest appearances as well. Alison Mosshart from The Kills and Michael Stipe from a, a lesser known band called Rem. Um, yeah, Rem. Yep. I was confused by the birds and the bees Forgetting if I meant to The 
album actually leaked online two months before it was due to release and I think people feared that would absolutely devastate the sales but it still got to number one in France, number four in Australia and number seven in the UK. The first track, Meds, is a collaboration with Moss Hart and it is a totally, totally forgettable piece of music. second track infrared i don't like it much but being objective i can see how that track would really work for fans of the band mm. i actually quite like infrared uh, just in the context of the of this album under music It's got all the, the hallmarks of a big sing- or one of their big singles, you know? It, well, that's the yeah, thing. I think yeah. it ticks the boxes for placebo fans, and I think it does it reasonably competently. Mm-hmm. I just don't think on its own merits it's that great about music. I think drag is better. You're always ahead of the game While I drag behind I drag behind I drag behind um, I think it's the best track in the album The, the, the third track uh, Nice and simple And really lively Yeah uh, And I do want to pick out The eighth track And it blind Because that is an example Of a song that Even on my first listen I was able to guess Almost exactly Where each vocal line Was going to go Before it happened mm-hmm. If I could tear you From the ceiling I know Best have tried I'd fail your and it underlined to me how formulaic they'd gone already. Mm. Like Brian Molko has a very limited vocal range, and he also has some <laughs> tricks that mm. he does. That <laughs> all these kind of like double consonant echoes yeah. and these like specific lifts where he goes up two notes and stuff, and you can just see them coming a mile away in this mm. record. Um, the ninth track on it, though, funnily enough, Piero the Clown, it's actually quite a nice wee down tempo tune. It's pretty melancholy and quite cute. And if you're ever around, and the back streets are the There's a lot of, I think it's like synthy strings on it that are maybe a little bit OTT, but it's it's well written. Uh, and the 10th the track's the one with Michael Stipe and it, Broken Promise. Keep I have no idea why he was was brought in for this collaboration. It doesn't even sound like him on it. No, it doesn't sound like him. The track is like a kind of power pop swamp and it doesn't suit Michael Stipe's voice. It's a very delicate vocal that he's done and it's totally gratuitous and pointless. I mean, it's not... This isn't a bad record, but really that's not saying a lot. There's really very little on it worth going back to um, and certainly nothing that's not found elsewhere in their catalogue done better yeah so this is a, a, this is their third best record in his view apparently mm, at that time anyway in 2016 
he said he doesn't remember, he doesn't actually remember very much from that period because this was the last album they did. They were doing drugs on their, their relationship with Steve Hubert was breaking down. He was probably having a nervous breakdown at the time, so he's like, I, he just said in an interview that he doesn't actually remember very much about the period that this record was written and recorded. Uh, but he still thought it was really good, so that's pretty cool, I guess. <laughs> good for him. I think he's yeah. a bit of bluff there, but um, just took a nice big swig of my tizer. Lovely, isn't it? Still none the wiser as to what tree that fell off. Yep. 2007, they did a thing called Project Revolution. Project colon Revolution. Project spelled P-R-O-J-E-K-T. And from that spelling, if you haven't already guessed that the other bands in that tour were Linkin Park, My Chemical Romance and Taking Back Sunday. Have yeah. a fucking word to yourself. It was a, it was a, I think it was a Linkin Park like curated tour, wasn't it? Because they did that a few times across Europe. Did they? Good mm. for them. That yeah. must have been good. Different uh, bands. Yeah. So 2007, Steve Hewitt leaves uh, that relationship having disintegrated. He actually went on and started his own group called Love Amongst Ruin. Uh, but then, more significantly in my opinion, he joined the reformed 6x7, which is a band that I've mentioned a few times and that will certainly make an appearance on this show at some point. Uh, 2009, Battle for the Sun. Mark, this yeah. is a strange little album. Uh, this is very upbeat, <laughs> which is the thing that really struck me about it. The way you crack a smile, you really start a fight. Can I um, can I throw a couple of quotes in? Yeah, uh-huh. Brian Moko has said, "This is quote the sound of a band trying to find a new identity." To find out who they were again Now just that quote to me is a total oxymoron So this is the sound of a band trying to find a new identity To find out who they were again Yeah <laughs> I can't unpack the fucking stupidity of that comment um, That ho- that this is, this is almost the epitome of that hollow PR bullshit That people have to do about records And it must be exhausting doing it mm-hmm. But trying to describe your own music in a way that's enthusiastic to Endless fucking procession of journalists looking for a quote mm. But honestly, the sound of a band trying to find a new identity To find out who they were again Is just as meaningless as it fucking gets Totally man um, Another one uh, It feels like a new beginning We're reinvigorated, refreshed and ready to take on the world Which mm-hmm. <laughs> is total fucking mid-career Out of a fucking textbook bullshit like yeah. Absolutely like You know PowerPoint presentation Like right guys Here's what you say At the press conference Okay here's the kind of thing Just stick us a, Like fridge magnets For fucking positive Record comments mm-hmm. Just absolute Fucking empty horseshit Yeah He th- he reckons it's their Fifth best record um, He still reckons It's better Than their best record Yeah Basically um, He says Speaking in tongues Is one of his favourite songs To play live It's the only record they've ever recorded outside of the UK. It's quite anthemic. 
it's an album about guitars and drums uh, and it's very much the sound of a band trying to find a new identity which, which is what he said in 2016 again to describe the record oh that's a mess um, I think you know it does sound like a band trying to find a new identity I think he's actually right there Don't sound like placebo anymore. No, I agree. I think <laughs> I think I think he is right there. Yeah. But it sounds like a mess. It sounds like mm. confused and mid career and just like what are we doing? Where are we going to sound like? Where are we going to find our inspiration next? Yeah. I do want to just also point out uh, the second track, Ashtray Heart. For anyone that knows them, so it starts exactly like a United Fruit song. <laughs> <laughs> I could have sworn it was a United Fruit song for uh-huh. the first twenty seconds. Um, I think I think Bright Lights was okay. Kitty Litter was decent as well. Neverending Wise got quite a cool chorus, but doesn't not not a good enough chorus for them. The album's a shrug, the mm-hmm. big shrug. Totally. Uh, twenty twelve, they brought out a thing called B three EP. Uh, Cynthia, and it's a bit different. It's not. It's not bad. I mean, if it had been an album track, I would have said it was a pretty decent song. I'm not sure it's a great single. Uh, and then in 2012, and get this, uh, they played exclusive shows in a bunch of big European cities, I think the likes of like Munich and stuff like that, or Milan or whatever, to celebrate the launch of the Mercedes-Benz A-Class. Awesome. <laughs> um, what kind of branding exercise was that, I wonder? Like, oh, we're going to be a prestige band now? Is that it? Like, we're, we're old and sophisticated and we're going to now do Mercedes-Benz exclusive fucking tour dates. That's fucking appalling. Like, I believe the Brian actually was involved in some, like, designers, like, launch for a collection fairly recently within, like, last year or something as well. So, it's yeah. absolutely fucking howling. Mm-hmm. Like, howling. Yeah. Imagine the smell of that. <laughs> Just that concept It smells like a new car <laughs> And a million pounds <laughs> It smells like a new car That a dead gangster was pushed into the water in And has decomposed in And then they've pulled it out of the water And left it sitting in the sun At the edge of the water in Miami All afternoon That's how that fucking concept smells it Smells like awful 2013 They brought out an album called Loud Like Love Now I had I wish read, they hadn't <laughs> Well here's the thing I'd read a few different you know pieces from fans of the band And people revisiting their works and this had actually been picked out as being a slight return to form that people thought that this was just you know disregarded as just being in the mulch of their late career stuff mm-hmm. um, and that actually it was really good and I will say the first track in it I think it's fucking brilliant Loud Like Love is remarkably good and it's really cheesy but in a really jubilant way Love on an 
Uh, the production on it is great and they get all the transitions right and I think it's the best thing by them in many, many years at this point, that particular song. Their beauty and their truth So we name them And somehow they pull us through now, The album is nowhere near as good as that particular song. Um, the third track in it, Too Many Friends, has one of the most jarring opening lines of all yeah, time. Yeah, fucking horrible, man. I was, what was it? I was gay, so I threw my, com- the com- the my computer. My computer thinks I'm gay. Mm. <laughs> and uh, he does it twice in the song as well. Um, yeah. Despite that line, I still found the song quite endearing. I mean, mm. it's a very, very simple song with just a very kind of a grungy kind of thing to it, but it's not, it's not awful. Also, the video for that song featured Brady Stanellis, which is probably a clever bit of branding. And yeah, wouldn't fly now, to be fair. Wouldn't fly as well now, <laughs> but back in 2013, when the world was a different place. Yeah. They, they, I mean, and this is the thing, right? So that's 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 2013. Mm-hmm. That's the second best album up to 2016 for them. Uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, there was an EP, the name of which I can't remember. Then in 2022, there was an album called Never Let Me Go. And honestly... I am totally fucking checked out at this point. My imagination doesn't know where to go So it goes to sleep instead I hesitated at first because there is also that thing always mm-hmm. in the back of your mind like what if someone hears this like what if Biffy Clyro's manager hears this what I'm saying about his band and he, he throws a strop on Twitter I mean what if that could, that could happen couldn't it oh, it could well, happen <laughs> I, just wondering about that happening in the context of this but you know what Brian was never uh, shy of the odd frank opinion I'm sure there are plenty of people I mean he has a catty fucking reputation mm-hmm. there are plenty of people that are like fuck that guy He's a, he's got a big mouth he's had a lot to say about us so this is Honestly, a band going through the motions now. Nobody understands Cause there's nobody at the wheel The songs in their later career, especially that Never Let Me Go and that, they're so disposable. The vocal lines are so predictable. The energy is so fucking saggy. Um, We're getting old, man. You yeah, know, I mean... Like, Anything controversial or titillating or edgy is done. They're like Muse on a smaller a smaller scale without the conspiracy theories, preaching to the converted, this profoundly unnecessary band at this point. I mean, they, they, and I was saying about that internal monologue thing, like I think they must have some internal monologue going on about how they're still being productive and artistically relevant, but really, really, guys, and I think, I think the worst part is they aren't awful and they've never really been awful. There are bands that have been awful, well, apart from that fourth track, uh, the, the hip-hop thing. They aren't awful or even incredibly bad. They're just so painfully unremarkable and irrelevant now. They're not shocking. They're not subversive. They're mm-hmm. just fucking doing the same thing. And please, for fuck's sake, start what has to be an inevitable goth electro project. I mean, surely as they're getting older, they're thinking about doing their kind of Depeche Mode mm-hmm. and sort of like moody goth thing. It must, it must be in the horizon. Just do that. 
just do that instead. Well, it sounds like they've become a different band. They're a lot more optimistic and open now than they used to be. But to go back to what you were saying there about them just kind of becoming like a beige thing, they've always they've always skirted that though, right? Do they have a consistent record? No, they've always had a song or two in there which is like, oh, why? You could have just left, left that off and had a really tight record, do you know what I mean? And they've always kind of had a bit of that in them. It just seems to be that now that is the majority of their output. Yeah. You know, um, because you're right, they stop being controversial and then you stop being a bit relevant and then whatever you got left to say. They've obviously tried to change identity with Battle from the Sun. Um, but then changed back again. Mm-hmm. Like the the vocal lines, the predictability of his vocal lines is appalling. He does the same fucking thing. Yeah. You, you, ca- you can honestly hear one of their songs for the first time and guess where the vocal line is mm-hmm. going to go. Mm-hmm. That's atrocious. Yeah, it is, yeah. And the, the new album, or the latest album, what, what was it fucking called Never Let Me Go? Yeah. The song sounded by Spice is decent, I guess, but everything else is just fucking like, and what? You know, why did you, why, you, you took a break for like almost 10 years? You should have just stayed in the nearly They're nearly 30 years of band, and mm. Placebo was a great. And vital part of a lot of young people's lives, a lot of people's lives. It, it just it doesn't need to go forever. Yeah, just <laughs> let it go. I mean, maybe you still got things to say, and fair enough. Try something else. But they, they well, if they've still got things to say, they should start fucking saying them because they've been saying them for about fifteen <laughs> years, with, with a very, very rare exception. Um, one other thing that we should also mention is they had a feud with Limp Bizkit. Yeah, <laughs> that's a thing. Placebo had a fucking feudalent biscuit. Fred Durst used to go on stage at shows where they were sharing a bill, and instruct the crowd to chant "fuck Placebo." Uh, apparently, it stemmed from them initially being furious that they had to follow Kid Rock. Which, to be fair, I would be fucking furious about that as well. Let alone being on a, a bill with Limp Biscuit. But uh, this this slow burn fucking thing went on for years, like right into the like two thousands. Um, supposedly the hatchet is buried, but who knows? Do either of them even care about that the other band? Have they ever cared about the other band? It's just it's uh, total fucking the, facile nonsense. If ever there was a reason for Placebo to consider just hanging up their fucking acts, it's because they're, they're in danger of Limp Bizkit being more relevant than them. Yeah, well, I mean, Limp Bizkit's trick that they seem to have pulled is like, they now realise how fucking ridiculous they've always been and are just playing into that now. Yeah. Which works for them because... And New Metal's on the, on the cusp of making a resurgence. I saw a white guy with cornrows the other day, mm-hmm. like the guy from for, for court, it was like I couldn't tell if it was that Diego Laxal, the, the left back that he played for Celtic for yeah. the season, or if it was that boy for corn. But honestly, white guy with, with big baggies and a chain and cornrows, and see when that starts happening, that's like you know, in, the, in a movie when you the first zombie appears, mm-hmm. the first zombie, where you're like, Oh, fuck, there's one in the background running, that's the first zombie of the film, yeah, you know. That's that's that guy. He's he's the vanguard of the of the resurgent new metal fucking onslaught. And Fred Durst's gonna ride into town on that wave like fucking Neptune on top of some fucking dolphin. <laughs> and Brian Mulco is gonna get swept away. So just get out the road. Yeah, I think you know a lot of hardcore metalcore bands have been incorporating new metal influences for the past five years or so. So I'm not surprised to hear to see it coming There's back. There's a generation of kids that are fucking running out of fucking retro '90s shit to listen to, so they're going to have to move on to something. They're all getting fucking fed up of listening to like "Dub Be Good to Me" and all these songs mm. that fucking Blackstreet that we hated the first time they came out. So they're going to have to start fucking like mining some other trough of shit. Yep. You know, crack open some other fucking <laughs> musical septic tank and start fishing things out with their hands. Um. Anyway. 
Let's move on. Let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about Placebo's first record. Uh Placebo's debut album, the self-titled debut album came out in nineteen ninety-six. Uh by the way, apparently originally meant to be titled Body Politic. Which is a pretty cool title actually. It's alright, mm-hmm. and I mean it kinda of reflects him wanting to challenge things, but went for self-titled, which That's one thing we haven't mentioned actually, is like a lot of their earlier career stuff often talks about sex and is quite sex positive and in, in ways as well, which Oh uh, fucking massively, like incredibly yeah. lewd mm-hmm. and challenging in its lyricism. There's a lot of like taking influences from PJ Harvey and Patty Smith and a lot of these kind of people. And we'll talk about that a wee bit actually when we talk about Nancy Boy the song mm-hmm. itself, which is a big part of this this record's uh, history. They they had to deal with Elevator Records and what, what basically happened was that before Placebo brought this record out there was a little bit of a bidding war between labels that had seen them win that competition and heard the buzz and you know boys listening to them and all that kind of stuff and so that gave them leverage and a label called Caroline Records agreed to set up Elevator Music specifically for placebo so they could retain creative control and somewhat you know a sense of independence and it was also like the record came out uh, also with hut i don't know what the territory division was but hut was a subsidiary of virgin which meant really really good distro um brian moko says uh, we were like kids in a candy shop regarding them going into the studio we didn't know our way around the studio we couldn't believe someone had actually fallen for it and given us money to make a record i think it being this album captures that youthful exuberance and joy at being there and this is sort of the very first most obvious reason that I am so fond of this record is because there is something so innocent and ambitious and imperfectly naive. Yeah, well. naive mm-hmm. about this record. It's a young band with lots of ideas and clearly different places they wanted to go musically and they couldn't quite get them all to stick together. They don't all stick, but it's so interesting and it's so, you know, brave. Against the backdrop that we tried to highlight earlier on When you consider what was going on um, So the initial release of this album though Only got to number 40 in the UK uh, The first three singles, Bruise Pristine 36 Degrees and Come Home Had had done quite poorly I mean I actually remember 36 Degrees Was the first one I heard by them and I quite liked it And I think it was because of that That I, I looked out for their performance on White Room I think that's the chronology um, And then the Teeny Jang single was released After the album Just prior to the single Nancy Boy being released, uh, Placebo played David Bowie's 50th birthday party at mm-hmm. Madison Square Gardens to 20,000 people sharing a stage with Sonic Youth, Lou Reed, Foo Fighters, The Cure, Frank Black, Smashing Pumpkins, which is fucking mental. That is crazy. Mental. That is absolutely crazy. The, the, the company they were keeping at that time, that's what I said earlier on about that kind of silver spoon thing, this band got a lot of breaks. I mean, to not do well would have been quite a feat. Mm-hmm. I do think they deserved it in a lot of ways, but fuck me, man, they certainly had a helping hand. January 1997, uh, the release of that Nancy Boy single just propelled the band. Uh, it got to number four in the charts. They did a Top of the Pops appearance, I think the Jules Holland as well. And then the album then charted at number five, up from number 40. So it was a big, big fucking difference. We were a top 10 band at that point. Um, the album itself, it's it's not a lot of tunes. Um, the first track on it, Come Home. Stuck 
Brian Mulco ever the man with a soundbite describes this as pop punk for postponed suicides. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that opening drumbeat and the raw scratchy guitar line is just so unrefined and so energetic and youthful it really captures the excitement that he's describing in that earlier quote uh, the vocals admittedly sound trashy and kind of thin compared to later recordings but I think that goes with the territory um, it lays out their early love of a, a simple wee guitar refrain in the vein of Sonic Youth or the Pixies uh, you know and, and how those kind of refrains can go really far in the place of a catchy vocal hook sometimes The track doesn't rein itself in in terms of brevity. It's quite in- indulgent and repetitive, and it actually gives it almost a slightly crowdy quality. Mm-hmm. The fact that it keeps looping round, and it has a fairly, I would say, decadent ending for the opening track on a band's debut. But it's totally different. It's a really odd and hard to ca- categorise piece of alternative indie rock pop stuff. Yeah, it's uh, actually struck me listening to this after listening to the whole catalogue that it's actually really strange hearing them without synths somewhere in the background. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, they're pure power trio mode, right? This is like you're right. It's, it's got that exuberance to it. Um, I've written it's like an, it's like alt rock clatter because it sounds like it's clattering, like they're just clattering about the studio. Really does, you know? Really does, and yeah. I really like that about it. There's something very British about it as well, and that's another thing about this band. It's like they they're obviously an international band, right? Yeah. But they, there's something really British about them. Always has been, which is probably why they f- there were people. Trying Chuck him into that Britpop thing because mm. it do still sound quite of this this fucking cursed island. <laughs> um, when you bring in the breakdown about two fifty and you kind of it goes a bit weird. That's a really interesting and ballsy thing to do in the first the first record, the first song in your first record. Do you know what I mean? I like that bit of weirdness and it does portend what's, what's to come in yeah. terms of the weirdness of their career. It reminds me of some of their kind of peers at that time or just shortly after. It was a band called Seafood who did a really similar thing. And I think placebo at this stage of their career minus the kind of glam aspect are quite similar to seafood it was an energetic kind of post sort of grunge post sonic youth wave of bands coming out here that were quite unrefined and they couldn't quite congeal around the sound but between them they had some you know these these bands and especially those two had some really really good stuff and that 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 breakdown you're talking about is also very reminiscent of seafood who are another band that i'm sure we'll talk about in the show at some point Mm -hmm. Um, the second track, Teenage Angst. First of all, it's an Nirvana quote. It's from uh, Service Servants, Yeah, I think. A teenage Angst has paid off well. Yeah, now I'm bored and old. Yeah. Um, I think this is quite simply one of the best alternative pop songs of the entire era it's um, a fucking classic song super simple and super effective I love the brevity Silence. 
plain little bass flourishes break up the chorus guitar, the drum beat itself has enough texture to avoid it being one dimensional, even the instrumental ending is another wee treat given the kind of standard kind of grungy rule book of that era, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, chorus, end, they, they, they went for something a bit different. I absolutely fucking love this song and it, I got this single when it came out and I, I listened to it, listened to the B-sides, got the next one, listened to the B-sides, I was really thorough about this band, I remember seeing them playing that one live in the White Room and it just fucking blew me away, absolutely loved that tune and mm. it still works to me as well, which I don't think can be said of a lot of their other stuff including a couple we'll mention shortly. Yeah, I think Teenage Angst is, is, um, is a really great example of, of the great downbeat sound they have but still got a catchy chorus which mm. is quite unique, it still is quite unique actually. Actually, mm-hmm. um, the thing that really makes them stand apart from other alt rock bands of the era, I think, they get the balance of all their composite parts really right here. A simple song, simple melodic structure. You know, they get in, they get out, they don't make a scene. Yeah, you know, yeah, uh, it's also got some slight electronics kicking about in the background as well. I don't know if it's electronics or if it's like kind of like processed kind of guitar overdubs. Yeah, but it's, it's quite cool and it's, a, it's an interesting texture to add to this song, which they didn't need to do, but it does again give it a bit of a differentiation between some of the other songs on the record. Well, that was him saying about being a kid in a candy shop in that studio mm-hmm. and being able to just do stuff like that that they'd not done before. Uh, the third track, Bionic, uh, described by Brian Moko as about a robot fuck. Um, <laughs> Right at the start of this song, there's a tone that always reminds me of a railroad crossing. Do you know the one I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, again, the, the structure of the song for me is brilliantly unusual, okay? The, the deliberately repetitive vocal refrains take the song into a different territory. I mean, it's not instrumental, but since the vocal has an almost sample quality to it due to the reput- repetition, it, it allows you to kind of get lost. It's a fairly clever, intricate and a richly melodic guitar bass interplay. That is, as you said, a power trio, but that incredible, beautiful symbiosis that, that, that Brian and Stefan have is brilliantly showcased in this mm-hmm. song. And that the nature of those vocal lines, they're almost like just hitting a sample pad. It almost starts to sound quite crowdy. It's not an instrumental song, but I really mentally process it a wee bit like an instrumental song. The drums really work in it too. Use really simple little kind of tom drops and flams. It means it never gets too generic. And again, the chorus illustrates the power of a little guitar hook. And also, that little muted outro that it's got mm-hmm. it's pretty fugazi in it yes I thought that as well actually I've written that down here I think the chorus has got a kind of that kind of woozy stone roses quality 
um, which a lot of their stuff has. But for me, the thing that struck me the most, I don't even like this band, but the big clanging chord sound, the open clanging chord sound they use in this song really reminds me of Johnny Marr and the Smiths. Mm-hmm. Which, as a reference, I'm sure they appreciate because they did cover Big Mouth. Yeah, Strikes, Strikes yeah end, absolutely. They? Brilliantly as well. Yeah. It's a great cover. And you can hear, like, you can hear Johnny and Mars guitar playing, and this, and it's, it's kind of cool to hear that filter through the lines of this band. That, like I said, I don't have much time for this mess, never have had, but I can definitely hear the reference, particularly in this song. The uh, placebo cover of Big Mouth Strikes again replaces Walkman with Discman. <laughs> so uh, I guess it would have been replaced subsequently with iPod and then Spotify what, iPhone <laughs> as my app starts to melt the fourth track in this 36 Degrees It comes in, I think it's 32s in the hat, you know, a really fluttery hi-hat, which just brings the energy level of the album just straight back up, barreling out the gate. I love that. It's really good sequencing. I also like the fact that in this one, the vocal sets the scene before the song crashes in. So the vocal starts over the hi-hat and that's a really mature bit of songwriting you know what I mean for a band of this age I mean I would never have thought to do that until well well into songwriting and probably because I nicked it off them mm-hmm. so I really appreciate that um, the chorus drum beat in this song is mental and almost sounds kind of clumsy but I have to say now that I'm used to it it's it indis- indispensable I wouldn't change it because then it straightens out for the verses and that kind of emphasises them There's also that wee random number middle eight thing where he just starts yeah. rattling off mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, with the ring offs. I think that's a nice little breather. Uh, the video for that one, 36 Degrees, uh, was directed by the guy Chris Cunningham. Uh, he's the guy that did Window Liquor, you know, a really oh, famous yeah. video at Apex Twin, and he did Bjork stuff, and I think it was Radiohead as well. Um, and the, the title, as I understand it, it might refer to the, the body temperature, um, but also apparently somewhere. In slang, I couldn't work out exactly where uh, it means. Uh, it refers to people being at thirty six degrees when they're not getting on, so that maybe a breakup thing. That said, that was a fan site. That could mm. be bollocks, but you know, fans. I think it's a really good idea for them to bring in a second guitar here, which plays that lead line, um, and you start to see that more of that thing which they would do live, where they would sometimes get have like a, a session bass player or something. Yeah. On a session guitar I think player. Stefan actually moved to guitar on some stuff and they brought in yeah, a bass player. Yeah, yeah. totally. Uh, I think they've got they've got a keyboard player and a guitar player slash bass player live at, as a part of the touring lineup. Mm-hmm. Um one thing I started to notice at this point in the record is the pace in this record is really interesting. They've got a short song, then a long song, and then a short song, then a long song, which happens throughout the entire record with the exception of the last two songs, which are both about four and a half minutes, five minutes long. Yeah. Which does actually help with the flow of the record, I think. Um, you're getting a, you're getting this kind of more expansive as possible and a bit more experimental for them at that time mode and then you get that actual direct punch in the face like this song is yeah um, and I think that's quite cool and it is a really good sequencing decision to stop this record from feeling a bit flabby which I easily could if you mm-hmm. were starting to 
bunch of these longer songs together. Oh yeah, definitely. You know? And I think it does stray into that territory right at the very end. It does, yeah. Um, the fifth track, Hang On To Your IQ. love this song another one in the vein of Bionic which does have vocals but feels to me like it straddles instrumental status since so much of the time of the track is spent developing and indulging in those kind of musical interplays between the guitar and the bass The, the whole song is like a lazy summer, summer afternoon has a beautiful sense of effortlessness to it I think is it chimes or glockenspiels yeah I thought it was a glockenspiel yeah, yeah they give that a, a really distinct personality a sense of space I, I also think the discordant breaks are great since they also exaggerate the melody that then rushes in after them Brian Moko had said about this one uh, the person in the song is having a breakdown about every physical and emotional thing that they could feel mm. make it that way you will I, I, I just love that breezy upbeat languid tune man it's, it's, it's gorgeous and it doesn't really sound like anyone you know mm. it's a really odd school of songwriting I thought the guitars were quite smithsy, um, but it was more of a kind of ba- it's kind of a ballad really in it at the end of the day. Um, it, it, it is, but it's whimsical yeah, and it's um, druggy and it's it's just it's it's so in the middle of a bunch of other reference points that I, I think it's very distinct. It's in the middle of the album as well. Then this idea, I guess, it would be if it was on vinyl, so it actually works quite nicely for ending that uh, that selection of songs that would make up the first side. I like the glockenspiel or bell or toy piano. I don't know what the fuck it is, but I, th- I think it's glockenspiel in the chorus. Uh, yeah, that weird breakdown of four minutes is a really nice touch. It's, yeah, it's a it's a unique song, and I think that again it shows it shows hints of this experimental nature this band would later successfully and unsuccessfully in some cases go on to flirt with. Yeah, further down the line. Uh, here's a big one. Uh, and sort of the making of this album as we saw when it jumped for number 40 up to number five, Nancy Boy. So first thing to to, to make clear. So I have the original version of this album and the original Nancy Boy is 10 BPM slower. Yeah, it sounds the, much better. Than the one that most people know. The original was 170 BPM, I think it is, and the Sex Mix, mm. which became the kind of definitive one, which is the one on Spotify, uh, that's 180 BPM yeah. thereabouts. Uh, the Nancy Boy Sex Mix also has things like Synths. It's got like a, a rising alarm sound mm-hmm. thing in it. That uh, It was one of their earliest examples of kind of production. Uh, 
you know, we, you said that that, that that portends to some of the stuff, the production stuff that would appear on Without You I'm Nothing. Uh, that sound, according to Moko, was meant to symbolise the rising first rush of taking ecstasy. Because this is, we're talking about the lyrical content, the themes and stuff. This whole track is about being provocative and embracing and addressing mm-hmm. topics that they felt, you know, Brett Anderson was too scared to talk about. Uh, the lyrics are overtly sexual, maybe in the vein of PJ Harvey around about that time. There's an early version of this song that has sexual yelps in the chorus. I don't, I don't know if you've heard them. It's a you know, line, she's coming over me, and then he's like, ah, ah, ah. I haven't heard that one. I'll no. try and find it and cut it in. There's nods to fetishism and drugs all the way through. Malko said he feels it neither promotes nor condemns promiscuity and looks to reclaim a traditionally disparaging label for camper gay men. Again, the band phased this song out of their sets. Uh, Moko had said, uh, I view Nancy Boy the way I expect Radiohead view Creep. By the way, fucking totally with him there, absolutely. Uh, he said, he continues, I just wish the song that propelled us into the limelight had been a little bit better written. It's the lyrics that make me cringe the most. Mm. I'd say it's definitely not my best work, but it's better than anything no Gallagher's ever written. <laughs> uh, also, for anyone that's seen the video, which is a little bit oddball, uh, supposedly that was inspired by Soundgarden, and I'm guessing... F- they mean black hole sun with yeah. their stretchy faces and that weirdness, the general kind of mm-hmm. visual montage of odd imagery. So um, they reckon that this record is their uh, seventh best record out of eight. Um, really? Second, second lowest. He was asked about Nancy Boy in that, in that uh, interview and he says that the question actually was, do you think Nancy Boy is any more relevant today with progression that transgender community has made? And he said, you know, I really wish I could say yes, but I'm not even sure what the song's about. <laughs> it seems to be about pansexual hedonism and letting it all hang out, but I'm not really aware of what it means to other people. But I do remember being on tour when it, when it was coming out. We were at an indie club in Scotland after a show and the place was packed and when they put on Nancy Boy, it cleared out the dance floor. <laughs> I turned around to Stefan and I said, I think we're fucked. <laughs> and he said, no, they just don't understand it. I was very convinced we, this would be ignored and it would become a flop. So I was very, very surprised to hear it was proven wrong and it ended up in the top five. I wonder what club that was, <laughs> man. I wonder if it's like the Catty or something. Yeah, it's quite funny. 1997, early 97. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a fucking great song, man. I do prefer the original demo version, the one that was out before, the one, the original version of the song, the slower version. Uh, without the sense, it sounds more raw. It's got yeah. a, a lot more punch to it, a lot more impact. The chorus is like a slap in the face, which I think comes out of nowhere in this song, I think, a little bit, which is why I like it so much. And it's, yeah, I mean, he's quite ambivalent to the song now. And I can totally see why, because the lyrics mean fucking nothing. But I think it's naive as part of the charm, right? Now, it's it's catchy as fuck. It, it doesn't really, it, it's trying to say something, but it doesn't really quite know what it's trying to say. It's trying to be provocative, but it doesn't really know in which way. It's got a kind of rough idea of what it wants to do, but does it really stick a landing? He doesn't even know anymore, but it works, you know. And you know, it's an interesting uh, entry into the canon of tracks that bands hate that they wrote themselves. You know, when you consider mm-hmm. like your Smells of Teen Spirits and your All Right by Supergrass, and it's interesting in that company. I think it's one of the better ones mm-hmm. in, in that context as well. And you know, if you're playing it on fucking TV like, every second week, you totally see why you get to hate this kind of shit, right? Yeah, of course. So, and miming it half yeah. the time as well. Um, track seven, I know. Uh, did you redo anyone? Yeah. 
played by the drummer. The drummer, yeah. I knew a band that used to do that once. A uh, bit of bongos too. Uh, this is a really melodramatic tune. Uh, the verses are a bit hammy and overwrought, but I think mm. in the context of the album, I can live with it. Um, the big choruses are a trick that they haven't used too much up to that point, especially given that that was really the standard tool of most of their peers at the time. Is you know big choruses. This tune, I think, is the closest they get on this record to some of the down-tempo ballady stuff they did in the later records. And it's okay, uh, but again, I think it got there first. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, maybe there's a Pepsi Challenge song later on in their career that would go head-to-head with it, but it's ultimately just replicating what this did. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a come-down after the last song, isn't it? Um, that didgeridoo is quite unsettling. It's got an Eastern feel. Which I actually, I like the feel of it I like the vibe of the song More mm-hmm. than I actually like the song itself I like the idea of the song The keys work quite well in it as well mm-hmm. um, It's not bad when it kicks into gear Around mm-hmm. halfway But it's Yeah You could, A little you could bit lose laborious. it You could lose it You know Yeah yeah um, The eighth track Bruce Pristine uh, in, in hindsight I think this one probably sounds The most dated Yes um, But it was already old By their standards totally. at, at the time You know It's their first ever release It does follow a kind of nice placebo template, like a simple one, and it's sort of like a lesser cousin to Nancy Boy and some of the tunes that would appear later on. Chorus riff, uh, that sort of stepping up guitar thing, that's quite nice. And the odd drum beat, that the, the drummer actually keeps the song kind of fresh by having those breaks mm-hmm. at the end of each bar. It's just a little bit, a little bit stodgy and yeah. dated in hindsight. Mm-hmm. I mean, compare this to, in my opinion, to Teeny Jang's. Teeny Jang's is weathered far, far better. Even on this record, it feels like a step backwards sonically for everything else. Maybe this is the demo version that's on this. I don't know if it was even no, recorded. No, it's, it's not. Well, it's not the initial release. I've mm-hmm. got that. Yeah, I've cut that in earlier on. But it, it sounds, it just sounds backwards, you know, and and yeah, I can understand, you're probably attached to a song like this and it's gotten you somewhere, so you, you, just, you want to chuck it on a record, yeah, you know what I mean? Because you, you've got that, like, uh, completest instinct as yeah. well, you know, you've this mm. this was one of our tunes, this is a tune we're known for, I mean, if they're touring about and playing gigs, mm-hmm. people who were already into them would really know this song. That would be the thing that they owned, mm-hmm. you know. There wouldn't be many things for them to hold on to and listen to at home. So if you've only got two releases by this band and they decide not to play one of them, you'd be pretty fucking raging. Totally, you know? yeah. Um, it's got some cool things. Like it's got the, the downbeat vibe, the middle eight with the harmonics is, is quite simplistic, but quite a cool touch. Um, it's a verse too long, though, and it does feel quite prototypy, blueprinty, yeah. you know. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Uh, Lady of the Flowers, based on a, a Jean Genet book, Our Lady of the Flowers, I believe. This 
big slow but I think it's, it's strangely delicate quite refined there's loads of spoken word vocals in it um, that you know the, the chorus is sung though so that's a bit of a release it's not really my favourite on the record mm. but you know it does have a nice payoff towards the end of the song that really brings it up a level I thought the guitars come in I wish they'd got to that a wee bit quicker yeah. really You know, it's fine as a kind of end the album thing. What I what I really feel is considering that in conjunction with Swallow that follows it, mm. Swallow really doesn't need to be on here. It's a big weird, uh, in my opinion, silly pseudo instrumental trippy thing, mm-hmm. like some kind of indie jazz workout fueled by too much studio budget. Yeah. And uh, according to them, is inspired by an acid trip that they they, they took. There's some vaguely electronic remixes of it, but again, why? For mm. me, it's just a bona fide skipper. And Lady of the Flowers would probably have been better had it been the last song, because mm-hmm. then you it would have had that status. You know how sometimes last song you actually you're like you're engaged with it more because you know it's the finale. Mm. You know what I mean? So it's got that closing scene vibe to it. And sort of track ten point five, if you will, HK Farewell is like a, a an instrumental sort of ten minutes after the end of Swallow. Feels like a post rock song, which is far better than mm-hmm. Swallow, though. Yeah, it's I much better than know. Swallow. It's much more in keeping with the rest of the tone of the album, and that as well would have been a better finishing tune mm-hmm. than Swallow. So I think they lose the plot a wee bit at the end of the album. They just jam everything on there, and it would have been better had they kept some of that stuff. I think off there. I mean, extra B side material if you need it, mm-hmm. but really, ultimately, your album a bit of brevity would have really worked. But yeah, certainly days. I agree with the ending and with Lady of the Flowers would have been a good show. It brings back the harmonics from Bruce Pristine, which is a nice touch. Yeah, that's right. Quite clever. I like the I like the vocal going through like that kind of weird old telephone effect. I thought that was quite nice as well. But it just meanders and it's quite it feels quite inward feeling. They're quite an inward band anyway, but it feels even more mm-hmm. you know introverted. Yeah, uh, but not in a, not in a good way. It just it just kind of doesn't really get. It never it never really it's, it's a song searching for a hook is what I'm saying. It's a song yeah. searching for a hook which never ever finds it. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I think you're right. Like ending with HK Farewell would have been much better and much bolder as well. I mean, it's just an instrumental song with a really lovely piano motif, which I think it works does. really well. Aye, and it's also got similarities to different instrumental moments throughout it. You mm-hmm. know, moments from like "Hang On to Your IQ" and moments from "Bionic." Like, there's there's similar threads in there that yeah. I think would have made it more consistent overall. Mm-hmm. So I, I, they should have ended with that, to be fair. And it does, I guess, on the online. Right, that's the last song. Yeah. Um, uh, there was also a, a reissue later on that came out with a track called Slacker Bitch on it which had originally only been a B-side but it's not essential by any means I don't think so I guess my conclusion on Placebo and my conclusion on Placebo by Placebo. Um, mm-hmm. Due to the song Nancy Boy, uh, the, the, this album's it's really recognisable, but that song actually went a long way, I think, to overshadow some of the really, really good work on the other tracks. 
the ability to write it off has been overly sim- simplistic, which the band themselves did. That uh, the track Nancy Boy can do a disservice, I think, to the. To the other brilliant and sometimes quite complicated interplay that the album contains, especially for such a young band. When you look at Bionic, when you look at Hang On To Your IQ, that's a power trio maximising what they're doing. I mean, as critical as I am, Amuse, who are dog shit, they are an incredible power trio at filling up that space and making it work. And this, I mean, placebo were for me the, the epitome of that at that point. Um, Great bass work, great guitar work within its lanes, not virtuosic, but just really, really well done. Um, made them sound more layered and expansive than they actually were. Uh, plus the live chops were actually up to speed, which was which was reassuring as well. I think culturally they spoke to a generation of young sort of sexuality and gender questioning people at a time when there were scarce few other examples in British culture that I can really think of, certainly musically. I think they were refreshing in the way that they flew in the face of Britpop and new metal, uh, as you said. Um, sadly, as I've said, they just didn't really seem to know when to stop, and they're now a kind of baggy, bloated mess. But um, this this record demonstrates a nice synthesis as well of European influences, or at least North American and British influences, but viewed through a European lens. Mm. Joy Division, Depeche Mode, bands like that, but then executed against that British backdrop and as a result I think it produced something really quite distinctive uh, at this point they're fresh they're unrefined uh, and they're exciting and I, I think they're, they deserve inclusion just for being different uh, I would say and for sticking with it but I do concede that it isn't hard to stick with it when you get every fucking tour and every fucking reward from an early date I mean Placebo would have had to snatch defeat for the jaws of victory mm. given how things unfolded for them but this record on its own merits I just think is really interesting and really likeable yeah I think Placebo are a weird band um, they are obviously a big band not the biggest probably the most oh I mean Muse dwarf them yeah, yeah probably the most overlooked of that era of, of band uh, and time has actually been surprisingly kind to a lot of their a lot of their earlier a lot of their peak I guess music I think you know it feels a bit some of it feels quite timeless including a couple of tracks on this record um, I was really shocked at how considered and assured this was for a debut album for a band that had only been a band for two years at the point at the point when it came out I don't know I don't know if we could ever put this band in an unsung category really or that maybe this record could go in there because they're better known for their their bigger, more ambitious music and it's not that much bigger, it's not that much more ambitious either when you think about it compared to some of the stuff they were actually doing in the early days which isn't a million miles away from what they're doing now, just that has more synthesizers and maybe a bit more sonic nuance um, even if it's not as interesting. Yeah, I'm glad I did this exercise. It's a band that I'd always, they'd always been there but yeah, never, yeah. never really been yeah. in. On the periphery um, of mm-hmm. your attention and yeah. Awareness. And I was vindicated in thinking they're a good singles band. They're a great singles band. Yeah. And look, some bands can't even be good singles bands. <laughs> so, and and in the, the era where singles mattered, they fucking smashed it, really, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Chuck it in there. Go yes. on. Yes. Go on. Well, then that brings us to the Nexus, Mark. It's a series it is of chips. A series of chips. A series of what? A series of chips. Nexus. Is it? They are not as a series of chips. It's a really odd old reference to uh, something the congressman said in America. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> like no. six or seven years ago. Sorry. <laughs> totally sideswiped.
complicated series of connections between different things. Um, The Nexus this week is courtesy of fucking Kenny Benella again. I mean, I think that guy's been in here and tampered with that tub of names. Does he live in the cupboard or something? (laughs) Who knows? Yeah, uh, and he selected for his Chick Charnley, which I believe uh, Sarah Jane (laughs) Slick, Silk, Silk, Silk Shearnley, that's how she pronounced it at first. (laughs) So Chick Charnley was a midfielder, a football player, born in Postle in Glasgow. All right, Postle Park, do you know know how we say it in Glasgow? How do you say it? Postle. Hey, Poso. Uh, it's just up the road to here, actually, from where we're recording right now, and it's a fucking spicy place. To it hang used out. to be a used to be a shithole, still kind of a shithole. To be fair, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting, like he's for Poso because he, he played for Park Thistle and Poso at Park Fairhill Park, the stadium, is in the shadow, literally of the shadow, literally. the high rises in yeah. Poso. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it could still do a wash. Yeah. Um, so apparently he was named Chick because when he was young, he used to sell chicken door to door. It was sort <laughs> of, uh, it was acquired they in, love it. in illicit ways. He, let's see, he played football for a load of clubs. He left St Mirren, Clydebank, and Hamilton all after things got a bit fighty. Uh, one of them included throwing football boots at the manager's head. Uh, turned up for his first day at Dundee FC for a. <laughs> A black eye for the previous night. Um, Sounds like Ivy Postal, mate. <laughs> he does a. He patched the Celtic North American tour to go to the Algarve and get drunk with his pals. Um, he spent two years officially registered as a rigger in Nairn uh, so he could be a ringer for the oil rig football team. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking tremendous. <laughs> that, was, that was during his career as well. Um, He's a, he's a talented loony though He, like, he was like, he, he got a fair amount of respect during his career Although I believe at one point he asked Andy Roxburgh for a cap And Andy Roxburgh said Why is the fucking sun in your eyes? <laughs> <laughs> um, he was involved in a famous incident Training in uh, Rickle Park Is he remember it Rickle or Ruckel? Ruckel Ruckel mm. uh, Also known as Dogshit Park at the time by the way Not far away from here either uh, Training for Partick Thistle Who didn't have a training <laughs> set up They just trained in the park <laughs> Um, he, he he told some hooligans to fuck off basically and they came back with a carving knife a samurai sword and a, an Alsatian uh, apparently Chick went at the guy with the samurai sword using a traffic cone um, got badly slashed in it as well and has a lasting scar on his hand uh, he was described by various people as a uh, Quote, his chest is all puffed up like a chubby pigeon <laughs> And his shoulders seem to come out of his ears As if in a coat hanger <laughs> that, was, that was the Guardian's John Mullen uh, And a guy called John Penman um, Writing for Nutmeg Described him as having quote, The look of an exhausted spaniel on a boiling hot day <laughs> <laughs> So I've done an exercise for this Mark and I'm sorry to tell you, it's a wee bit, it's a wee bit grim. It's a wee bit spicy. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wee bit grim in a couple of couple of places, right? But here we go. So we didn't actually mention the cover art for Placebo's self-titled album. So the cover art is it's like a wee boy pulling faces. And there's a couple of shots of that, and then the inside is kind of photos of grass and fences and stuff. And it's all quite neutral because Brian Moko didn't want to distract for the music, right? Basically, the kid that's in those photos, his name's David Fox. He sued the band. I read that, right? Aye. The way it goes is that this wee kid, David Fox, was at his older brother's funeral. Uh, his older brother had just died. Uh, I think it was like muscular dystrophy or something he died of. And his cousin, a guy called Saul Fletcher, he'd, he'd come to the funeral. And he'd come to the funeral with all his camera equipment. 
David Fox didn't really know his cousin that well But uh, at some point during or after the, the service Saul Fletcher got uh, David Fox to kind of come away from the, the thing And just start posing for these daft pictures Like take screw your face up and pull faces and stuff like that But then he used the pictures without any kind of clearance or permission For, for the boy's family um, That was actually, when they saw the record That was the first they knew of it since, mm-hmm. since the time Imagine the, David Fox did a big interview for the Sun newspaper, quality rag quality. that it is. Uh, the story does get a bit laughable at this point, I have to be honest. He claims the album cover ruined his life. Uh, he claims sure. at school he had lots of pals and then the album came out and he lost his friends and was bullied. Sure. Quote, <laughs> quote <laughs> they saw a boy pulling a silly face and didn't want to hang out with him anymore because he looks weird. Because... Uh, that doesn't ring true to most folks, I don't think. Mm. Um, he claims that due to the problems, he went to four different schools, including ending up at one for children with serious behavioural issues. Because of the photos. Not because his brother died or other related trauma, mm-hmm. but because of the photos that were used on the placebo album. Yeah, all the kids knew who placebo were, obviously. That's the only <laughs> explanation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're fucking great photos as well. But anyway... Coincidentally, he was 27 and unemployed when he when he sued, when he started the legal case. Oh. Uh, he said that his, quote, ambition to own a nightclub was affected by his appearance on the album cover. I bet um, you could have that came out of a fucking line-up now, mate. <laughs> you know, could have been Peter Stringfellow <laughs> if he hadn't yeah. been on that album cover. They could be Kenny Manella. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that would be an interesting, like... like Circle around Wouldn't it What yeah. a twist um, But he expressed anger At his cousin For not getting permission For use of the picture Which is fair enough That part is fair enough um, Now That cousin This is Getting a wee bit darker Saul Fletcher Did loads of Placebo's artwork And he'd actually developed Like a consistent theme To their artwork That you'll see In the early singles Especially An aesthetic That kind of crosses Over them There's one thing We didn't mention They're really good at that They've always been Really good at getting Like the artwork Aesthetic on point. building Aesthetic yeah, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well they don't use a lot of Saul Fletcher stuff anymore, needless to say. Uh, Saul Fletcher apparently became good friends of Brad Pitt, uh, which was then also... What? <laughs> Saul Fletcher, he was, he, well, he was an exhibiting artist. He's, okay. a, he's exhibited all over the world. And, like, you know, he, he lived in Germany and Berlin, but he, right. he, did, he did exhibitions in New York and okay. stuff. And Brad Pitt was a big fan and supposedly became friends. And that fact was mentioned and reported frequently in July 2020 when Saul Fletcher was found dead in Berlin, having apparently murdered the art Rebecca Bloom at Ooh. his flat. Wow. Um, he had then gone to her country home and committed suicide. So the two had apparently been having an on off relationship for years, and Saul Fletcher was reported to have frequently suffered periods of poor mental health. So the guy that did that placebo cover murdered this on and off again flame, uh, Rebecca Bloom, who was a really respected uh, art curator. Her mm-hmm. uh, daughters spoke about it, spoke about how they want her to really be remembered. So, yeah, that that was a really fucking crashing ending yeah. to uh, his association with Placebo, clearly. Um, Brad Pitt, slightly less nefarious character, uh, has a history with Glasgow. He filmed World War Z here. If you mm. watch World War Z, the opening scenes are actually George Square in the middle of Glasgow, yep. made up to look like Philadelphia. We were actually a lot of people that I know, people from my work, took part as zombies because yeah. they needed more extras mm. and stuff. Um, Brad Pitt also supposedly had a week long fling with a barmaid called, oh, I've got to, I can't remember off the top of my head, Joni or Julia or I can't remember. Um, but she worked in a Danny Kane's pub. On Mitchell Street. And by the way, if Kenny Benella is listening, I guarantee you that fucking guy knows that pub. So Danny Kane's pub on Mitchell Street was a common spot that people would stop off before going to like a rock club or a nightclub or a gig or something like that. Where about is, is that? Uh, it's, I think it's actually in, it's now Franco Manca. 
Oh, I think it's that. Okay, but uh, he he did that when he was filming an interview with the vampire in 1994. Oh, okay. He was here for a week. Another link he has to Glasgow has been a trustee of Glasgow School of Art alongside the likes of Peter Capaldi. The two actually helped to raise $20 million for the Glasgow School of Art after the first Macintosh fire in 2014. Now, where that money went, well, that's another story. Mm -hmm. You can read about this. There's some excellent articles um, about the Glasgow School of Art because most people from outside the city are going, oh, it's such a shame. It's such a shame that that place managed to burn itself down twice Twice. (laughs) and get huge amounts of money from the public and get huge amounts of money from private charity things and get huge amounts of money from insurance companies Mm -hmm. and then somehow use that money not to fit proper fire safety systems but to buy the site of the old Stowe College and become one of the biggest real estate owners in the centre of the city, then have another fire and then use that to now buy the property that burned down as a result of that fire. Anyway, you can draw your own conclusions for that. I clearly don't have any. But uh, Brad Pitt and Peter Capaldi helped raise a lot of money for that Mm -hmm. organisation. And uh, Peter Capaldi is from a wee town near Glasgow called Bishop Briggs. Uh, It's going to get dark again, so bear with me Mm -hmm. here. I should probably put a trigger warning in. Mm -hmm. Uh, In December 2016, a woman from Bishop Briggs called Joanna Renfrew said she was making her way to Glasgow with plans to end her life. Uh, To get there, she hailed a taxi and she said that that taxi ride and the driver of that taxi saved her life just by talking to her, by listening to her, by comforting her for uh, quite a long duration of a drive. Then he actually took her home, made sure she got in home, her family knew that she was taken care of and that she was okay. And she later on, uh, early the next year, um, 2017, took that story to the newspapers as a way to kind of publicly thank him. And that taxi driver was Chick Charnley. Fucking hell, man. No way. What a fucking belter that is. Yeah, that is is superb. Chick Charnley has... I th- he's got at least one cab I think he actually had a few cabs for a while but he's he's a taxi driver in Glasgow you can get him and he's fucking cracking banter uh, if you get him on his day but he also saved this woman's life and then it was reported uh, in the papers as a big a big story the next day have you been a taxi with him? could have been I, I actually didn't know he was a taxi driver yeah. who, who knows man we could so, all have been in one room yeah uh, I don't really know which one to go with here to be honest you've got two I've got two go for both of them okay I'll go with, I'll go with the first one because it's shorter so uh, there's a really lazy way of doing this. I'll explain what a lazy way is first. So technically, I've got three. Um, so Brian Brian Wilkos, uh, his mum's from Dundee, lives in Broughty Ferry. Mm-hmm. Um, she lives in Broughty yeah, Ferry, she, reportedly. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, if if she's still around, I don't know if she's still around. Um, but it's unconfirmed sightings. Unconfirmed, yeah. But either way, Dundee. She's for Dundee. Um, we know that. That's spoken about even by Dundee Press still to this day. Um, which means you can laz- quite lazily go from Brian Wilkos. Dundee, Chick Charnley, play for Dundee, therefore the connection is right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm not that lazy. So You were in the old days. Yeah, I was, but I'm not anymore. There's a, so, there's a, so there are a few notable folk from um, from Broughty Ferry. You know the actor Barry Keown? I know the name, what's he in? He was in uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer, he was in... Was he in uh, Banshees of Banshees and Sharon? Yeah, yeah, he did not win a, an Oscar. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, he's got a house, he lives in Broughty Ferry now. Oh. Which is, which is weird um, Is Brighty Ferry not the sunniest place in the UK? Yeah, it's, like, it's just outside Dundee It's like a suburb but, technically but, but is yeah. it not some anomaly where it gets a ridiculous amount of sun? It's like right on the coast, yeah mm-hmm. 
But I've went with a chap called Douglas Craig. You ever heard of Douglas Craig? Don't think so. So Douglas Craig is a former local Conservative councillor from from Dundee and also the former chairman of York City Football Club. Do you know the story of York City Football Club? Don't know, no. Okay, so um, he owned the club from 1990 to 1994 uh, and he was actually in charge of the club and they had one of the most historic moments of their of their entire like playing overall existence guess, existence yeah, hundred years of existence when they knocked out Manu in the second in the in the in the league cup over two legs in mm-hmm. nineteen ninety three they were a second division team Manu were a first division team so it was like a big thing the following year they went on to more cup glory and beat Everton in the cup so it was quite a, quite a good time for them. In 1994, the year after, um, Chick Charlie played against Manu when he was on trial for Celtic. He was on a trial for Celtic and played him in a summer friendly where um, he was about to get signed by Lou McCarry, but Lou McCarry was then let go and he ended up not playing for Ch- uh, for Celtic, even though he was apparently quote unquote considered the best player in the park that day. Uh, that uh, are you talking about the Mark Hughes testimonial? Yeah. Uh-huh. So it was a Mark Hughes testimonial that it was like Celtic against Man U. And no, it was a different thing. It was like it was an actual trial. It was a friendly in the summer. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of that. I know that McCarry was interested in him and said he wouldn't appear at the club because if he'd wanted to play for Celtic, he would have been at the North American training camp. Yeah. But he fucked off to the Algarve yeah, to totally. get smashed. <laughs> yeah. Which is a very chick channel thing to do. Totally. Uh-huh. So... The, the link there is like that's how you can get quite easily get to to Shai Charnley uh, from 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 Brian Moko. Yeah. Um, but York City is quite interesting because well not York City but Douglas Craig's quite interesting because in eighteen ninety four he became the only chairman in the league to not sign up to the Let's Kick Racism at a Football <laughs> uh, campaign. Bold move, <laughs> which is fucking hell. Uh, he subsequently went on to like completely fuck the club over. So um, he basically wrote to all York City shareholders and asked them to approve a plan to transfer the club and their ground to a new company. He, he basically said to all the shareholders that the two other directors, or three other directors, John Quickfall, Colin Webb, and former player and hero Barry Swallow, own, who owned 94% of the chairs, had already appro- approved the plan. By doing so, it sent the they sent the club into basic administration, and then he then sold the stadium back to the club for an enormous amount of money. He was also, ironically, after all that, trying to buy the club and all that. He was part of the three man FA panel that overruled the football league's decision to prevent Wimbledon from moving to Milton Keynes. So, really, a bit of an arsehole when it comes to football. He, d- he does sound like a Tory, though. Yeah, he totally does, doesn't yeah, he? Tory uh, councillor yeah. through and through. So, uh, the other one that I have, which is one that Chris wrote, um, which I think is definitely worth mentioning, this is Chick Charlie's Nexus. We'll call him. We'll call him. <laughs> Loads of them, yeah. by the way. Who thought we could get for placebo to Chick Charnley multiple times? I know. Um, this one's quite cool. Um, so the, their cover of Running Up the Hill was used in Top Gear Series 5, Episode 3, and a bit about Land Rovers. <laughs> Land Rovers. Yeah. Fucking placebo and Land Rovers. <laughs> the two just go together like bread and space. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably, go through, probably go together much better now, to be fair. Um, Joanna Lumley was a special guest on that show. Um, this is all comes full circle back to the very start, folks. Okay, Again, no. It's like the callback is now paid off. Um, in 1997, Tizer did a series of bus adverts with celebrity lookalikes. Tizer? Tizer, yeah. Tizer. Hang on, I'm going to take another swig. I finished my can, I wish I hadn't. I'm just trying to see if I can identify any constituent parts. Uh, nah. I think that might be Windowline. Could be Joanna Lumley. <laughs> um, Joanna Lumley was one of the celebrity lookalikes that they had. They also had Pavaroy and Liam Gallagher. Oh, is that they were on the yeah they on were buses. like on buses and it was like it was obviously not the actual celebrity. It was somebody that was a lookalike. Yeah, but it was tongue in cheek and it mm. said right okay. 
In the video for the 2020 single Once, Liam Gallagher invited Eric Cantona to play the role of the king. Fucking Eric Cantona, yeah, man. Which is pretty controversial for somebody who's a Man City fan, as you can imagine. Absolutely. Like, how the fuck did they sign off on that? Because, like, City and United, fuck's sake. Yeah, um, Cantona was seen on Instagram singing along to the song, so they asked him to be in a video. Um, on a podcast, Liam said they asked him how much he wanted, said he didn't want any money. <laughs> When they offered to pay for his flight or a lift, he refused that as well. Um, said he'd sort everything out himself, even brought his own bottle of wine. <laughs> so, did the video then just vanished, which is just the most Eric Cantona fucking thing in the world. And again, it all comes back to what you said about Mark Hughes. Oh, this is the Mark yeah, Hughes one, right? Yeah, okay, um, right. In 1994, um, Eric Cantona was a PFA Player of the Year and he was roasted by Chick Charnley. No, that, so he... All right, so he was... I Cantona came on in the testimonial match and Chick Charnley fucking totally did him yeah. uh, during the game, mm-hmm. I think. Um, Chick Charnley set him up for a goal and was end up award... No, up, no? Can't, no. He said, Chick Charnley set up Simon Donnelly. Okay. This, is, this is my yeah. Celtic trivia. Chick Charnley set up Simon Donnelly for a goal. Fucking beautiful goal as well. And he kind of totally murdered Derek Cantona with like... Chick Charlie not get man in the match in yeah that. he did I right. he Aye, the match, so yeah. basically Cantona having been awarded player of the year got like roasted by this Madworks for Possel and uh, yeah and then he but then he just fucked off the Algarve and didn't bother signing for Celtic or even going to the training camp brilliant something else eh? yeah no, they, so, don't, they don't make him like that anymore they don't it's true they don't <laughs> I don't know for what they make reason. him like yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah. alright Kenny you got your money's worth now Definitely. Get, get out of your pot Let's see, what is the next pot, Mark? You, you draw it, and if it, if it says Kenny Benelli on it, then don't read it. Okay. What have we got here? Uh, Ivan Demi- Dimitrovic Circo by Corey Robinson. Corey Robinson has chosen Ivan Dimitrovic Circo. I, I don't know who that is. Don't know who that is either. We'll find it. Yep. What are we doing it to? We, we don't really know. We don't really know yet, because there's a couple of folk that we might get in... There's a couple of things we might do ourselves, yep. so let's uh, keep them guessing on that one. Uh huh. Yeah. We'll um, if you want to suggest things for the pot, or if indeed you want to suggest records for the show, or if you want to just suggest places we can go and fuck ourselves, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, subscribe, and then you can join the AAA group and uh, get direct access uh, unfiltered to us, to and us. we will engage with you in a variety of subjects, including where we can stick it. But yeah, patreon.com forward slash unsungpod Go and help us out Thanks for everyone that joined And we'll be back here with a mystery record Next week Next week Bye